0: This is the seventh and final sermon in a series on our identity in mission. We've been uh, talking about who we are and what we are called to do together as a church in the light of uh, the recasting of our vision, mission, and motto. And uh, today's message is about how the family of God lives every day on earth with the blessings of heaven. Now, I want to give a little disclaimer here. I think this is a bit above my pay grade, uh, especially on this particular day when um, I seem to be struggling with uh, my weaknesses more than usual. But uh, we're gonna talk about finding heaven on earth. And I want this message also to connect us to the Advent season that we're celebrating right now, which really is all about heaven uh, coming down to earth. and. And that's the hope that we have. So the title of the message today, Finding Heaven on Earth, our text is Colossians 2, and we'll read verses 8 through 12. Colossians 2, verses 8 through 12. Follow along as I read this. This is the word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off. When you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, finding heaven on earth. Holy Spirit, come and move among us. Show us Jesus, crucified for our sins, raised from the dead, to give us life. And that will be more than enough for us. Take your word, Holy Spirit, and drive it down deeply into our hearts, into the core of our being, that we will be changed as you would like to change us. We we just consecrate this time, ourselves, these words, the hearing, the living out, all of it, Lord, to you, for your glory among your people before the eyes of a watching world. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but uh, I hate moving. Uh, I've moved a number of times in my life, and you've all done it. And you know that when you're about halfway through the move, you cannot remember why in the world you ever thought this was a good idea. Your life is packed up in boxes and crates, waiting to be put on a truck, You eventually run out of boxes, and you start putting things into black garbage bags, right? Only to discover that someone accidentally threw away some of your clothes because they thought it was the trash. (laughs) For weeks, you can never find what you need. Typically, you cannot even find a bar of soap in the morning. Everyone in the family is stressed. You're surrounded by chaos. But that is actually the easy part. The part that rips out your heart is having to say goodbye. Goodbye to relatives, friends, neighbors, shopkeepers, church members, who all together have made what has been your home. And then off you go to a new place with only a prayerful hope that a new community and home are waiting for you there. Moving is an experience of being betwixt and between. It's a metaphor. It's the experience of normal life that's been speeded up. It's as if it were put in a microwave and superheated super fast. We are always in betwixt and between. But moving just intensifies that reality. Even if you never change your residence, even if you never change your address, nothing ever stays very long where we want it. And this this goes for everything, relationships, family, work, school, the church, the city, your health. They're all constantly moving, constantly changing, sometimes becoming quite chaotic. For this reason, from the beginning of time, human beings have always looked for something upon which they could count. The ancients soon learned that they were in need of something sacred. A god or collection of gods in in order to find what Dante would later call the still point in the turning world. The still point in the turning world. They tried worshiping the, the earth, fire, sun, moon, stars, the four winds. They tried worshiping idols they made with their own hands. They tried worshipping the philosophy they developed about life, which really began as a kind of religion, but everything about life just kept turning, just kept moving. So when the Apostle Paul writes to the Gentiles in the city of Colossae, which, by the way, was a church, a family of nations much like our own, he cautioned them in verse 8, He said, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Now that's a mouthful right there. Uh, Paul is describing really the kind of idols that we set up to help us live our lives. These are things we think will somehow make it better Somehow make it smoother. He talks about philosophy. He talks about tradition. He talks about the the spiritual forces behind the scenes of this world. We want to tap into these things, make our life better somehow. It's all idolatry. But we live in the 21st century A.D. We assume, I think, sometimes that we're far too sophisticated to be taken captive by idols by philosophy or tradition or the spiritual forces of this world. Uh, I, I wonder if that's true when life is chaotic, when it's turning too fast, when it's spinning a bit out of control, to what do we turn today to find that still point that Dante talked about? You mentioned a few things that I think we turn to. They're all good things. I won't mention any of the things that we know are destructive that we often turn to. But even the good things that we turn to to find some kind of still point in a turning world. Uh, do you turn to your work, to your job, to, to, to business, to industry, the economy, uh, commerce, business, the economy, uh, they, you may have noticed they, only, they, they grow only by keeping the world moving. That's what they want to do. If they become static, they're in trouble as a business, so they've got to keep things moving. They've got to stay on the moving edge of things, right? And typically, one of the things that means is that your job may be moving too. So, the economy. Well, that has certainly taken us on a frightening ride at times in recent years. can hardly be called a still point. Uh, Do you turn to education? You probably have high hopes for what education will do for you or for your children, for your family. Uh, The leaders of education are under enormous pressure these days to turn away from great ideas and the liberal arts in order to offer what is really a more utilitarian, practical means for making a living so that students can get jobs and pay off their student loans. That's how the education system works these days. Education's goal has become to keep you moving along in life as a productive citizen. Do you turn to the government? Well, surely not. Not these days. But I suppose government often is a still point. But that's only because our representatives are usually in the stillness of stuck. You know, they're stuck in political gridlock. They can't seem to, they don't just don't seem to know how to reach across the aisle and get things done anymore. But government has never been able to calm your troubled soul. Do you turn to the arts? Well, much of contemporary art is devoted to Trying to honestly depict the disjointed, fractured, fragmented nature of life today, so there's not a lot of help there, no soothing of the soul to be found there either. How about the family? I mean, you can't go wrong with the family. The family is still the most cherished cultural institution for most of us, but it cannot be a still point either, because it's Also, always on the move. People in the family are always growing, changing, moving around. It's actually supposed to be that way. The greatest purpose of a family, what is it? It's to be a community of sacred formation. Formation of character that turns each of the family members into persons of faith, hope, and love. People of prayer who are vitally connected to the living God. So how is that going in our culture? The late University of Chicago philosopher Alan Bloom uh, claimed this. He said, Even in those homes where mothers and fathers care about their children and unselfishly devote the best years of their lives to them, the dreariness, these these are striking words, the dreariness of the family's spiritual landscape, passes belief. He's looking over the landscape of family life in America. He goes on, We have nothing to give our children in the way of a vision of the world, of high models of action, or a profound sense of connection with others. Then he concludes by saying, The family has to be a sacred unity, believing in the permanence of what it teaches. Right. Yes. The family has to be that sacred unity with God at the center. How are families doing with that? How's that going in our country these days? See, in all of these areas of culture, commerce, education, government, art, even the family, it's apparent that we're using every facet of it to try to find a life that feels secure, or at least appears to be secure. And yet culture, it's incapable of being our vision for hope for a sacred, still place. Now, I'm not a culture hater. I'm not a culture despiser. I love culture. I study it as much as I can. I take it very seriously. But like anything you love, you have to know its limitations. As an idol, any cultural institution will always be lacking. Precisely because it's a creation of people who are thrashing about in search of a sacred hope. Every aspect of our culture is part of a world that just keeps turning, churning, sometimes into confusion, sometimes into chaos, sometimes into brokenness, sometimes into darkness. But, you know, this is what we do we still keep coming back to the only places we think we might be able to find some light, even though we have long ago discovered it. it there's nothing really there, and it cannot really satisfy our souls, not for very long. Karl Valentine was a master clown in Munich, Germany, in the early part of the last century. And he had one scene for which he was especially famous. Uh, He enters a darkened stage, illuminated by a solitary uh, circle of light that's thrown by a street lamp. Deeply worried, he walks around the circle of light, obviously searching for something. A policeman enters the light and asks, What have you lost? The clown responds, The key to my house. The policeman joins in the search, but they find nothing. Then the policeman asks, Are you sure you lost it here? The clown then points to a dark corner of the stage and says, No, I lost it over there. The policeman says, Then why in the world are you looking for it here? And the clown becomes serious. He stares at the audience and he says, Because there is no light over there. I'm looking here because there's some light. I know there's nothing here, but it's dark over there. This is what we do. Now, I know many people don't care for for clowns because they scare them. I understand. We've had some creepy clown stories in our country this year, haven't we? But I, I would submit to you that this is the scariest clown of all. Because Valentine was offering an absurd depiction of human frailty, of human foolishness and weakness. Since we have to believe in something, and since our souls demand that we call something sacred, this is what happens when you are made in the image of God. It's true for every human being. And since we have to, you know, we we demand that we call something sacred, we will commit ourselves to almost anything, wherever there is some promise of light, even when we know it is foolish, it is futile, and there's really nothing to be found there. But our search continues. Now we are ready for the gospel. Now we are ready for the gospel. The good news, this wonderful good news about Jesus. A savior. A king. Now we're ready for the gospel. In our text, the apostle Paul claims in verses 9 and 10, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Wow. In Christ... What happened? <laughs> Everything changes because in Christ, God entered every darkened corner of the world stage. And he entered as the light of life. He's the lost key for which you've been searching. He's the still point to your turning, churning world. And that is all because Jesus has brought heaven to earth. Jesus has brought the light of heaven. To the darkness of earth. That's what Advent is about. That's why we light candles, because they dispel the darkness. They remind us that a light has come into the world. This is what Isaiah spoke about in such a poetic way, it just grips our heart. He says, the people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. When Jesus came, that child that was born, that son of God, son of man, who was given. As he walked through this world on his way to the cross. On his way to the place where he would bear your sin. On his way to the tomb where he would be buried. The tomb from which he would arise from the dead with eternal life, abundant life for all who trust in him. Well, on his way in this world to the cross, to the tomb, he said to people amazing things. And one of the things he said was, I am the light of the world. Well, we thought that's what the sun and the moon and the stars were for. He says, no, no, I created those. But he said, I am the light of the world. He said, whoever follows me will never stumble in the darkness, but will have the light of life. This is what we need. And it's all because Jesus has brought heaven to earth, the light of heaven to the darkness of our world. We tend to think of heaven as something that is waiting up ahead of us someday. You know, someday we're going to to get there. We tend to think of it in horizontal linear kind of terms, time kind of terms, someday we'll be there. And that means, in many ways, we, we often feel that we're on our own to do the best we can in this chaotic, churning, turning world. You know, people move from one place to another, one relationship to another, one degree to another, one job to another, moving, 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 all in the hope, that somehow they'll do well enough to find heaven somewhere, somehow, someday, in the future. So heaven has come to mean, uh, I hope I will be with God someday. We will be with God someday. The biblical vision of heaven is so different from that. It says that the relationship between heaven and earth is really vertical. It's not horizontal, it's vertical. The God above us has come down to be among us. That's what he did in Jesus Christ. In Christ, what does our text say? In Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in him. All that heaven is. Think about it. What can we, how can we imagine heaven? All that heaven is. All that heaven has to offer can now dwell with us, within us, among us, all around us. This is what fuels the vision that we have recast for our church, a vision to be a thriving family in the city where the broken from all nations are made alive and whole, finding hope and purpose In Jesus. Because in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells. That's how our brokenness is made whole. That's how we become alive from the dead, because all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. And so Christmas, you know, is coming, and it's as if Christmas is shouting to us on the way as it approaches. It's saying, God is with us. God is with us now. It's not somewhere up ahead. It's now. God is with us now. This is just flat out amazing and life-changing. So Paul continues. He talks about circumcision, which they would understand from the Old Testament. and It was a a picture of cleansing and purifying. And, And in verse 12, he goes on to say, as he speaks to the believers at Colossae, the believers in every age, he says, Having been buried with him, that is Christ, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. If you wonder what God can do, God can raise the dead. So, he can do anything else. So this means that your baptism." If you think about your baptism into Jesus Christ, your baptism is is almost a kind of pathway for finding what you've been looking for, that still point in a turning world, what you were always searching for, what humanity has always searched for, is heaven, paradise. Call it by different names, it's heaven. And that's always driven by the fact that everything on earth is always on the move. It's always turning, it's always churning. Everything, every ideology, every philosophy, every accomplishment, every relationship, and even mortal life itself, this life we have on earth in these bodies, none of this will endure. But Jesus Christ, the fullness of God, dwells in him. And so... Only Jesus Christ is the same, as the Scripture says, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in your baptism into the eternal yesterday, today, and forever one, you buried every other hope for a Savior. You were given Jesus as your Savior, and you were given His saving life, His fullness. According to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, with Christ you received every blessing in the heavenly places. Can you get your mind around that? Can you get your heart around that? It's amazing. But the point of that is you can stop your restless, anxious searching. Your baptism into the life and the death and the resurrection of the Savior in whom you trust has already given you what your soul yearns to find, that still point called heaven. Now, some of us may be more attentive to this uh, this truth than others, but but all who are truly baptized into Christ have the opportunity to claim this fullness of grace that has already been freely given in, in the beloved Son, Jesus Christ. There's another blessing. I'm just going to mention a few things here. There's another blessing that your baptism into Christ and into the family of God bestows upon you. Paul says as he goes on into verses 13 and 14, he says that to be baptized into Christ is to discover the mercy of God that forgives us all our sins, erasing the record that stood against us and condemned us. We all have a bad record, because all have sinned, all means all, and fallen short of the perfection, the glory of God. We've all got a bad record. And so along the way through life, we we try a lot of things. We try a lot of things in the search for a place to stand. We make all kinds of mistakes, we commit all kinds of sins, Uh, we hurt others. We hurt ourselves. We hurt the people we love the most. And and brokenness just abounds. It abounds within you to the core of who you are. It abounds in your relationships. It abounds in every human being you've ever met or ever will meet. Every human being who will ever live or has ever lived. Brokenness abounds. And that's what sin does. It breaks us. It breaks everything. Except the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. So the guilt and the shame of our brokenness just drives us along. It drives us to a kind of frantic churning and rushing about in some kind of an attempt to convince ourselves or maybe others, that we're okay. We're okay. We're okay. Your baptism into the death and resurrection of Christ, as it's described in verse 12 in our text, that's what says to you, you're okay. Nothing else in this world will ever say to you that you're okay. It might for a moment, but it won't last. This is what tells you you're okay. Okay. This is what proclaims to you that there's no record. There's no record of failure standing against you as you stand in Christ and you stand in his people. He's taken your bad record. He's given you his perfect record. So you can stop. Stop. You can rest. You can relax. You can rejoice. You can remember that there's no record standing against you anymore. And you can look around, and you can see and start to listen to your family members in the body of Christ, in your church family, because you know what? They have gospel grace and gospel truth for you, for me, when we need it the most. There are going to be times where you don't have much of that gospel hope and gospel grace and gospel truth for yourself, but somebody else in your family, your church family, does. So you can look around and you can say, thank you, Jesus, for the the way you've populated my life with your sons and daughters. And God, he knows our weakness. He gives us things we can see that are, symbolic, things like the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper. And they're there every time you sin, every time you confess sin, to remind you that your bad record has been washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that you have full communion with him, full access to him, full access to his life, full access to his people. All the fullness of God dwells in him, and it's there for you. Wow. So as Paul says at the end of verse 14, how did God deal with your sin? We we try to find all kinds of ways to deal with our sin. How did God deal with your sin? God dealt with your sin, says at the end of verse 14, by nailing it to the cross. It's very graphic. Yeah, nailing it to the cross. In other words, there were no half measures for God. He wasn't going to do this halfway. He was going to nail your sin to a cross. The cross on which his son hung as your sacrifice. Now, have you ever nailed something to something else? You ever nail something, you drive something, a nail into something to nail it to your wall? I mean, you don't do it halfway. You really want that thing to stay there. Your point is, whatever you're nailing to the wall is supposed to stay there. It's not going to come back. That's what Jesus did to your sin. He nailed it to the cross. It's not coming back. It's not coming back to you. In the language of our text, Paul says it's dead. It's buried. And you know what that means. That means on the worst day that you have, the very worst day you ever have, you can always, on that day, arise to a new and eternal life that begins afresh that day and every day. One day, after another day, another day, another day, each day, right wherever you are. That's the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the power of your sin being nailed to a cross, and it's not coming back to haunt you. Wow. So, the still point of heaven is always there. It's not just up ahead. Yes, someday we will be with God. Praise God. But, it's right now. The still point of heaven is always there to anchor you. And his name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. I want to read you something that one of the brothers, one of my brothers in the church, thank you, Bob, um, sent to me this morning. Uh, you know, the, the preacher and the worship leader, we always confer during the week, you know, try to t- get a theme going, bind these things together. And so this morning, I, I really have really been struggling. And um, Bob didn't know that when he sent this to me. But he said, I'm going to read this to you. He said, I was reading Morning and Evening by, S- by Spurgeon this morning, and look what just happened, quote-unquote, to be his musings for the day. I'm going to read you Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for the morning of December 11th, which, as far as I can tell, is today, right? Uh, his scripture text is 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. This is going to be a little older English, so you know, stick with me. Heaven is a place where we shall never sin, where we shall cease our constant watch against an indefatigable, that means never stopping, never quitting, enemy, because there will be no tempter to ensnare our feet. There the wicked cease from troubling, and the weary are at rest. Heaven is the undefiled inheritance. It is the land of perfect holiness, and therefore of complete security. But do not the saints, even on earth, sometimes taste the joys of blissful security? That's what we're talking about today. The doctrine of God's word, he goes on, is that all who are safe in union with the Lamb, all who are in union with the Lamb are safe that all the righteous shall hold on their way, that those who have committed their souls to the keeping of Christ shall find him a faithful and immutable preserver. Sustained by such a doctrine, we can enjoy security even on earth, not that high and glorious security which renders us free from every slip, but that holy security which arises from the sure promise of Jesus, that none who believe in him shall ever perish, but shall be with him where he is. Believer, let us often reflect with joy on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and honor the faithfulness of our God by a holy confidence in him. May our God bring home to you a sense of your safety in Christ Jesus. May he assure you that your name is graven on his hand and whisper in your ear the promise, Fear not, I am with thee. Look upon him, the great surety of the covenant, as faithful and true, and therefore bound and engaged to present you the weakest of the family. To present you, the weakest of the family, with all the chosen race before the throne of God. And in such a sweet contemplation, you will drink the juice of the spiced wine of the Lord's pomegranate. He gets kind of poetic here. And taste the dainty fruits of paradise. You will have an antipast of the enjoyments which ravish the souls of the perfect saints above. If you can believe with unstaggering faith that faithful is he that calleth you. And he will do it. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen. And that, my friends, is how we find heaven on earth. Amen. Amen. I'd like us to spend a few minutes in prayer as we usually do. Sometimes we feel burdened and we need to pray. Sometimes we just feel like caught up in something which seems so big and we don't know what to do with it, and we need to pray. So wherever you are on that spectrum, can we spend a few minutes just in prayer right right where you are? If you would like to pray with somebody, just turn to somebody near you and say, Would you pray for me about whatever it is?